Father in heaven, you are a mighty God and a great king. And as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel and are posed with the question of who will be the king, we know that earthly kings come and go, but that your heavenly kingdom is forever. And so we worship you. God, help us now as we submit ourselves to your word. Encourage us and challenge us, we pray, that we may be good citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I want to ask you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 19. And as you're turning there, uh, I wonder if you've ever read about or maybe seen some of the great escape artists of history. Harry Houdini, or David Copperfield, or... David Blaine, more recently. Houdini was one of the earliest greats. He escaped from ropes and straitjackets, often hung upside down, stories above the earth, wiggling his way out, seemingly magically. David Copperfield, an illusionist and escape artist, is known for a variety of stunts, including a 1990 stunt in which he was chained inside a coffin that extended half of his body and the coffin was suspended on a raft and the raft was lit on fire and set afloat down the river to go over Niagara Falls. <laughs> and the scene ends with David Copperfield hanging on to a rope of a helicopter as he ascended back up over the falls for all to see. David Blaine was an escape artist and um, an endurance artist, he was called. He was once buried alive for seven days with no food and only two to three teaspoons of water per day to survive. One time he was shackled into a rotating gyroscope and his attempt to escape in 16 hours failed, but he would not have them let him out and 52 hours of struggling later, he escaped from the rotating gyroscope. And the things about escape artists that are so intriguing to us that make us want to engage them or watch them is that they tap into our core emotions of fear and the loss of control and the threat of physical harm or even death. They, they tap into those fears and they look them right in the eye and somehow they escape. It's amazing to watch. And it poses, I think, for probably many of us, what are you most afraid of? What are some of the scariest threats to you? As we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 19, King David, who was not yet the king, but the anointed one, was under constant threat for his life. As the current king, King Saul was pursuing his death. And as you read the stories about Saul and David and Saul persecuting David and Saul ultimately trying to kill David and some of the stories that we're going to read today, you say to yourself, man, David was, was seemingly one of the great escape artists of his day. Today we read about four attempts on his life and four great escapes. And in them, you see a wonderful truth about God as it relates to you. And so follow with me as we read 1 Samuel, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. This is what it says. It says, And Saul 
spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan's But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all of these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul. And so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put on a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair on its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? Michael answered, Saul. He said, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David had fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is in Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where is Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth and Ramah. 
And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? David was a man on the run. <laughs> four attempts on his life, four great escapes. And this sequence of events is the last time that we will see David in the court of Saul. The rest of Saul's days, David would be on the run. Never in good standing with the king again. You see, he was in a bind. David was the anointed, chosen king to be of Israel, but he was not yet the physical king of Israel. Saul was still the physical king, and he had been rejected by God. He knew that he'd been rejected by God, but he didn't know who his successor would be. And you have to imagine that as he looked at David, he had to wonder. <laughs> Clearly, God's favor was upon him. Clearly, success surrounded him. Clearly, as Saul feared for his own kingdom, David's rise was becoming a threat to him. And as we heard last week, when it comes to a life with God, you are either surrendered to God or you're warring against him. There's no middle ground. I wonder which one are you? Saul was definitely warring against God. And it's a fool's errand to be warring with God or with God's anointed. And so you look at these stories, these four sequences of events of Saul seeking to kill David, and it might be described as madness, madness, sheer madness of the king as he goes after the anointed. And there's a variety of emotions attached to this, many that we can relate to. We see Saul is driven by fear. When you look at the end of chapter 18 that Pastor Dan preached last week, we see in verses 28 and 29, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Fear of God's blessing to David motivated the anger and violence of Saul. Another powerful emotion motivating him was undoubtedly jealousy. You see this again and again and again throughout the accounts of 1 Samuel. David succeeds, Saul gets angry. David succeeds, Saul seeks to kill him. David succeeds, Saul gets even more enraged. And right here in this chapter 19, we see this dynamic again. As we see in verses 7 to 8, Saul seemingly has a moment of lucidity. He swears at the end of verse 6 that David would not be put to death. But then there was war again. And what happens when there's war? 
David goes out and fights the battle. And the Lord's anointed wins. The Philistines are struck with a great blow, it says, and they fled before him. And immediately following David's success comes another attempt on his life. Jealousy of the king toward the anointed. That is an emotion that's incredibly powerful and incredibly common. <laughs> I wonder how it relates to you. Do you struggle with jealousy? I don't know how many news stories I've heard of this last spring now into the summer of bridezillas who are struggling with jealousy. You know, the pictures of the brides who want a perfect day for themselves and they're jealous that one of their bridesmaids is wearing a certain dress or looks a certain way or has a certain striking appearance. And their jealousy becomes so profound that they do the unthinkable. They hijack their own wedding just so that that bridesmaid wouldn't receive the attention that the bride herself wanted to receive. Or I think of the story of the two shopkeepers, bitter rivals with each other. Their shops were right across the street from one another, and they spent all day keeping tally of the people that would go into the shop of their enemy. And when somebody would come into their shop, they would smile through the window with great delight and triumph at their rival. And one night an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream. And he said to the shopkeeper, I will give you anything you ask. But whatever you receive, your rival will receive twice as much. Would you like to be rich? You can be very, very rich indeed. But just know that your rival will be twice as rich. Would you like to live a long and healthy life? You can indeed have a very long and healthy life. But just know that your rival will live longer and be healthier than you. So what would you have me give you? And the shopkeeper thought about it long and hard. And he frowned. And after many minutes, he looked at the angel and he said, Here's my request. Strike me blind in one eye. So that his enemy would be completely blind. It's said of jealousy that jealousy is the attempt to kill another. But when you are driven by jealousy, you will always greatly injure yourself. You want to know if you're jealous? When you look at the career advancement of somebody who got a promotion that you wanted or the money that somebody has that you wanted or the car that somebody has that you wanted or maybe the perfect family life that somebody appears to have but that you want. One sign of jealousy is that when it's easier for you to show sympathy and to weep with those who weep than it is for you to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's one way to know that you struggle with jealousy. And Saul serves as a negative example that when you function in this way, it will destroy you. Conversely, when you look at David in this account of Psalm 9, or 1 Samuel 19, it's really interesting that there's almost no emotion found in David in the whole story. 
He's just on the run. He's on the run, he's on the run, he's on the run, and he's on the run. It doesn't tell us anything about what he's saying or what he's thinking or about what he's feeling. The greatest threats to his life are before him, and he seems to be silent. <laughs> but we can get a glimpse into his desperation. Because it's believed that during this particular period of threat and of fleeing, that David wrote Psalm 59. And so I want to read to you just a couple sections of Psalm 59 so that you get a glimpse into what this anointed of God does when his life is in danger as an example for you when threats are ever before you or when you are, when you are in danger in some ways. This is what David says. Listen to the desperation in his voice. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, no fault of mine, they run and they make ready. Awake to come and meet me and see. O Lord, God of hosts, you are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O oh Lord, laugh at them. You hold all nations in derision. O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Moving down to verse 14, he says again, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. When you are feeling threatened, where do you turn? When the unknown is before you and fear overcomes you, where do you turn? Some of us turn to the networks of the people that we know. Others of us perhaps self-medicate. Some lash out in anger, others shrink inside of ourselves. But take example from David. When he's fleeing for his very life, he doesn't rely on anything of his own strength. He simply runs and clings to God. Three themes emerged from Psalm 59. We should spend more time on them today, but we can't. But just know this and consider it as you reread it this week. David prays desperation to God for his situation. God, they're trying to kill me. 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 And I need you to do something. And again and again and again, and God listens. 
Secondly, you see that David proclaims in the midst of his desperation that God is the God of great strength. God, you look at them and you laugh. God, you are the fortress. God, you are the stronghold. All these things that I need are things that you can do. And then thirdly, this leads him to worship. He sings aloud of the steadfast love of God and praises him for his strength and for his mighty hand. When in times of desperation, turn to the Lord. And that leads us really to the point of this whole sequence of stories. And that is the protection of God. Because at first glance, it looks like David is a master escape artist. The Harry Houdini or the David Blaine of his day. He survives multiple outbursts, murderous rage of the king. He dodged spears. He escaped and evaded bedtime assassins. And he even saw the henchmen of Saul overtaken by the powerful spirit of God. But it wasn't merely David who escaped in his own power. It was God protecting his anointed one. Think about how creative God is in the story. The different ways that God employs this protection. He uses the very children of the king to protect David. He uses his son to speak words to him. He uses his daughter to allow him to escape in the night. Daddy's little girl... (laughs) The heir to the throne in the sun. Saul was warring with God, but his children were seeking him. And therefore, God uses them in this protection. But perhaps the greatest sense of irony, even more than the family, is the humor that's found in the last escape. So I want to consider it for a moment together. David had fled now for the third time, and he went just two miles down the road. He goes to the prophet Samuel. The anointed one of God should be able to find safe refuge with the prophet of God. And the king who knows this prophet, who ascended through this prophet, would certainly not kill David in the midst of the prophet. Safe harbor would be granted. But Saul takes no notice of such things. There are zero no-fly zones for this angry king. There are no safety zones. He will have his man, even if it means arresting or murdering him, in front of God's prophet himself. And so the assassins come. And in their approach... They see the prophets of Samuel singing and worshiping and prophesying aloud. And then in verse 20, something miraculous happens. It says that when they saw them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. They were coming to kill, and they ended up prophesying. Now, I know that causes all kinds of questions. What does it mean that they prophesied? What did they say? What are they doing? How does that work? (laughs) Quite frankly, it's not exactly clear. It seems that the Bible has 
prophesying that takes multiple forms. And depending upon the context of an event, prophecy can mean or do different things. For example, Samuel was the prophet, right? He prophesied the word of the Lord to the people. But King Saul was also tormented by a harmful spirit, so much so that he raved. And the word there for raving is prophesying. What becomes clear is that prophesying can mean different things in different situations, but the common feature of it is it's the kind of speech in which the speaker is under an influence beyond himself or herself. That the prophets of Samuel were singing and praising to God in the spirit of God, under the influence of that spirit, and as Saul's henchmen approached, something miraculously happened. God exercised the sheer force of his spirit and caused the henchmen to worship him. This is different than when that time when you're a kid and you're pinned down by your older brother and he makes you punch yourself in the face. It's a little different than that. We're talking about the sheer force of the eternal king of the universe coming down on these men to bring praise to himself. They sulk back to their king and they tell him what happens. And you can only imagine the disbelief that they experience. I mean, clearly these guys are taking something out on him. And so he dispatches a second crew. But they too prophesied. And so he dispatches a third crew. It's time for SEAL Team 6. It's the A-Team. And the rejected king sits on his throne. His recumbent form waiting. The return of the messengers for the third time. His thoughts fixated in jealous rage against his enemy, David. His deliberations wandering about in his mind regarding the possibilities of how this whole thing went wrong. And as he waits, the doors to his chambers open and his messengers sheepishly enter and timidly convey the truth. God's spirit had overpowered them again. God was mighty and strong in protecting his chosen one. And so David leaps to action out of his throne, grabs his sword, grabs his entourage, marches two miles down the road himself. If you need it done right, you have to go do it yourself. And as he reaches the famous well, he asks where they are and where are Samuel and David. He's given the direction. And as he marches to Ramah, before he even gets into the city, God's spirit has overcome him as well. And he prophesied as he went, overtaken with words that were not his own, walking the rest of the way. And the story ends 
with the great king being stripped of all of his clothing and laying naked on the ground. The majestic king who was robed and has regalia on so that all could see his status and his position and his power now lays completely incapacitated before God. Physically surrendered to him. Though he still rebels against him in his spirit. God exercises the sheer force of his spirit against the will of the king to bring praise to himself and to protect his anointed. Four great escapes. One escalating in their severity after the other. And they're all meant to bring us to this one truth. And it is this. That God protects us to accomplish the purposes that he has for us. That in the story of Saul and David and God's protection, we see a unique and miraculous way of God's protection. I think it's meant to show us that God protects us to accomplish the purposes that he has for us. So if you unpack that, you recognize, well, we're not all anointed like David. Yet, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become described in a whole different category of descriptions. God now calls you chosen and called and beloved. and He calls you his children. Because through the gospel of Jesus, you're washed clean of your sin. You become eternally precious to God. You're not all set apart like David, but in Christ, all those who are in him are indeed set apart for God's good purposes. Well, we don't all have the same purpose as David. So does this apply to us? I mean, David was uniquely chosen to be the king. But not only the king, he was the one whose kingdom would last forever. He was the, the king from which the line of Jesus would come. God would bring about his Messiah through this chosen anointed one. And this was far beyond what Saul had seen could happen. And quite frankly, this was far beyond what David could even comprehend. But God had a plan. And he was going to protect his purposes, and he was going to protect the one that he was going to use to accomplish those purposes. Saul would not be able to thwart the plan of God. And we don't all have the same purposes in God's plan as David. But we all do have purposes in God's plan. And there are a couple ways to look at that. The first is simply that you don't know. You don't know how God is going to use you. And that's really amazing to think about in some ways. We want to know. But David didn't know that he was going to be the forerunner to the Son of God. He was simply trying to survive. <laughs> on the run, clinging to God and trying to be faithful along the way. He didn't know that his kingdom would last forever. 
He was just trying to be faithful in the moment. Just like a young pastor preaching in London named Charles Spurgeon didn't know that God would use him to preach to tens of thousands of people in that major city in the world. Or a young Billy Graham who was stirred to say the good news of the gospel to his friends, to some of his neighbors, and then to some of his colleagues, didn't know that God would use him to preach to millions of people around the world. Or maybe a little bit more common to most of our experiences. Young Margaret was a stay-at-home mom who was raising her children and committing herself to their training. She had all the battles that we all have. Finish your dinner, <laughs> go to bed, stop hitting your brother, all of those types of things. But she was committed to training. She didn't know. She had no idea that one of her sons would become the reformer named Martin Luther. Or how about Edward Kimball? Some of you may have heard his name. He was a simple shoe salesman and a local Sunday school teacher in his church. He taught little boys week after week, month after month, year after year. He didn't know that one of those little boys named Dwight would become known as D.L. Moody, the greatest evangelist of a generation. Or the widow who gives of her time and her treasures and her talents and would as much as she would able give generously financially to her local church week after week, no ceremony attached, no recognition given except with God. She didn't know that all of those finances that she was giving to her local church were used to support a missionary who she knew as Hudson Taylor, but would go on to found the China Inland Mission. And millions or hundreds of millions of Chinese came to Christ. Here's the truth. You don't know how God's going to use you. You can't possibly grasp the effect of your life on others. Or the others beyond the others. <laughs> and so the only way to find out is that if you cling to him in faithfulness. And that's how we look at our purpose in life. Those are the purposes that God sets out before us in the Bible again and again and again. Faithfulness. <laughs> Faithfulness to the Lord. Faithfulness in my desires and my affections. Faithfulness in my efforts and my time. Faithfulness in my gospel witness to other people. Faithfulness with the, my money, the resources that God gives me. Faithfulness in my life. And even faithfulness when the greatest threats are upon you. Because it is in those times when that faithfulness will be tested the most. And because you're a Christian and you're set apart by God, and because God does have a purpose in you, then you can trust that God protects us to accomplish the purpose that he has for us. When you think about David in this story, you think about uh, just the nature of his expression of fear in Psalm 59 and what it's like to be on the run for your very life, day after day, week after week, month after month. I think about all the different threats and fears and difficulties that fill their, 
that fill our lives. I wonder what they are for you. Maybe it's the fear of significant illness. Or maybe it's the fear of tragedy. Or perhaps you're afraid of failure. <laughs> maybe you're afraid that you won't live up to the expectations that others have placed on you. And the list goes on. I don't know what those fears are for you. And I don't want to diminish any of them because I know that people, and maybe even many people, maybe even many people in this room, are constantly living in a state of fear of what could happen next. In fact, our whole media seems to be almost fear-driven these days in the news cycle. Watch out, this is going to happen. And our whole economic system is driven by presenting you with need after need after need so that you buy more, and many of those needs are rooted in a fear. <laughs> but if we learn one thing from 1 Samuel 19, it is that God protects us to accomplish the purposes that he has for us. That God protects us to accomplish the purposes he has for us. And so we could talk about what are some of our responses are in the face of threat or fear, or where we try to find our security, whether that's in our relationships or with our guns or by becoming a doomsday prepper. 68 million Americans are today. But God is the one who protects us and accomplishes his purposes for us. So you don't need to be afraid. He didn't save you just to let you be destroyed without accomplishing the purposes he has for you. I close with the story of a little boy who was tugging on a big rock and doing his best to lift it, and he was grunting and pulling, and it didn't budge. And his father came along and asked him if he was having trouble, and the boy said, oh yes, I'm having a great trouble. I can't move the rock. And the father said to him, well, have you exhausted all your available energy? And the boy replied, yes, Father, I think I have. And the dad looked at him and said, no, you haven't, son, because you haven't asked for my help. And so it is with us. We think that we're unable to overcome the attacks that are before us, the fears that are ever in front of us, or even the obstacles of this life. But we take cue from David, who says in Psalm 59, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Oh, God, you are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And we trust that God protects us to accomplish the purposes that he has for us. So let's pray and ask him to help us to trust him and to thank him that he is so kind in this way. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are the great king and that so often our perspective is limited, but that as you are the architect of time and space, as you unfold your plan through nations over seasons, that we have a life that we will not be able to fully grasp the influence of. And yet many threats come our way.
many enemies upon us, many difficulties that we think could hijack your purposes for us. And today we make the commitment, God, that we will trust you. You are our strength and our fortress. And we find our security in you. Thank you for this wonderful truth. In Jesus' name.